Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. We are back. Back in Minneapolis, that is. Um, and back on the air with this new episode. But definitely um, back in Minneapolis because we spent our second podcast, Weapon of Choice trip, in New York City. And it was, right. we can't even tell you how amazing it was. There's no time. Yeah, so although you, uh, everybody hasn't heard from us in a while, that is not because we've taken a break. We have been working hard, and we have a ton of episodes that we'll be getting out to you. Nice little dose of uh, poets coming up in upcoming episodes. We've got writers, authors, philosophers, photographers, and uh, muralists. Yes, so stay tuned for all of that. Um the trip to New York again we did three interviews this last time here in September or winding down September and uh, we are thrilled to be um, having an opportunity to keep making a run at this podcast weapon of choice this thing that we love this thing that so many of you have been supporting and uh, rooting for us since the beginning and uh, some of you are supporting in uh, very big ways and part of that is you are monthly contributors to our patreon and y'all are giving monthly donations to help keep us going with uh, equipment upgrades when necessary. Um, you know, helps along the way when it comes to our little mini travel trips to New York and L.A. And hopefully one day we'll be able to go interview amazing artists in Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, all the way on down to Miami, to New Orleans, to Atlanta. We've got our eyes on so many amazing artists in those cities as well that we want to connect with uh, and bring some amazing dope conversations to you as well. So if you'd like to help keep us going, please hop on our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast, www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. You can become a monthly donor uh, Weapon of Choice community member and join the rest of them at any amount, a dollar or more per month would really go a long way in keeping us going. We love your help and we appreciate your support in any way, especially when you tell your friends and you share on social media, whether you're on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram, you can find us at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Facebook, the same, at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And on Twitter, at Weapon Choice Pod. We'd love for you to show us some love there and leave us Five-star reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. If you listen on that platform, please show us your love and spread the word as much as you can. Tell your friends and family and tell the whole world by leaving that, leaving us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. We really appreciate that as well. Our featured artist for this episode is Sagira Shahid. Sagira is a Minneapolis, Minnesota-based poet known for her dynamic storytelling abilities her writing often reflecting upon her upbringing as an African-American Muslim woman. She's received multiple awards for her writing from the Jerome Foundation, the Loft Literary Center, the Minnesota State Arts Board, and the National Endowments, the National, and the, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We are so grateful to Segura not only to spend time with us for this interview, but to also schedule some time with us 
Um, we specially recorded three of her poems that will be featured throughout the interview, um, especially for this episode. So check those out. Stay tuned. There'll be a transition piece in and out of them, so you know. Um, and we're really looking forward to this episode. So let's roll the tape. Surveillance of love and remembrance of Eric Gardner and his daughter, Erica Gardner. Which came first? The observation or the observed body, I mean the heart, fleshy and tortured as it was, performed its function, its duty. And that was not enough. In the recorded interviews, the Gardner girl said she was threatened and harassed by police during the court hearings regarding her slain father. She was followed by unmarked police vehicles throughout her protests. There were officers who organized counter-protests and how it hurt to keep watching the video of EMS workers handling the body of her dead father. A short catalog of details that interrupt the lives of black mothers. One, chronic stress coiling the muscle until the muscle is a wound waiting to be unwrapped. Two, pain can be its own lesion, but that is not this particular tension. The tension is three, when a person must demolish a portion of her own body to withstand a governance. Four, physician or police, bullet or blood clot, inhaler or or taser. Five, exhaustion. In a recorded interview, the Garner girl said, what are the resources for people like me, like Tamir Rice's sister dealing with trauma? Did you know I didn't need a report to verify the health crisis regarding the bodies of black mothers? Did you know when an area of heart muscle is deprived of oxygen, it is called a heart attack? In her last year of life, 27-year-old Erica Garner named her son after her father. The grandfather will never know the name of the grandson. The son will never know the memory of his mother's smile except through a camera's lens. Isn't love a scar? Isn't love a naming? Isn't love the looming before breath? My name is Sagira Shahid. I'm a local poet. Um, I'm a creative spirit. And I like to consider myself like a part of the community. I like to be involved in my community and support uh, my community in different ways. Sagira Shahid, we're blessed to have you on Weapon of Choice. Thanks for coming. Uh, If you can think um, to an age in your life, a specific age, you know, you realize you're not normal. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I feel like I came out of the womb a little bit weird. But uh, it's different. I guess it depends on how you define normal. Because of some of the cultural context, I always felt like an outsider wherever I was, um, like in school and stuff like that. Um, but I think maybe 
in terms of like a conscientious thought, maybe when I was like eight or nine, um, that was the year that my family moved to Michigan for two and a half years. And it was just such a different experience. I started to have awareness of certain circumstances with my family, particularly mm. with um, uh, poverty. So we were low income, but when you're low income in Minnesota, it's a completely kind of different scenario if you're kind of broken Detroit. And so that awareness was really st stark for me at that age, like eight or nine years old. And so it was like connecting those dots and also really seeing a different kind of poverty in the Michigan area um, than what I was used to in the Twin Cities. So I grew up all over in the Twin Cities, but we were li living um, a little bit in North Minneapolis, a little bit in Brooklyn Park when we left. And so we moved to Detroit for and, and we lived in someone else's attic for a little bit at the time because we didn't have housing right away. And then we end up moving into this town that's literally surrounded by Detroit, which is called Hamtramck. It's such a tiny, intimate town, but it's really diverse. I looked up somewhere that it's the most diverse place in Michigan, I think. They have like just a huge population, like, um, a large population of different communities. So Polish, uh, Bangladesh, Yemenese, you know, African-American, all these different communities all clustered in this really tiny area. And so growing up there and just being, uh, and we're also close together and then different income levels. And then, I don't know, when you're a kid, you kind of fantasize about the world in a particular way. And so we didn't have a lot. So all I could do was just like fantasize about the world in a variety of ways. Um, I was also homeschooled for a little bit too during that time. So it was an interesting time getting to know folks, but I think that's when I was like, oh yeah, this is maybe not feeling weird in particular because I always felt weird, but just like the world is weird. <laughs> so, so in fantasizing about the world, was it uh, uh, was it more of um, a wonderment or was it more of imagining a completely new, like was it tapping into like your imagination creating, visualizing a world. I think it was just fantasy. Yeah. Like I used to do a lot of make-believe um, with my brother in particular, because we sometimes we had stuff, sometimes we didn't. So we would just make up stuff. Like we would just make up like scenarios with like, um, even like pretend toys, we would just um, make up storylines with people. We would just invent little games and then also just fantasizing about the world in general. So it wasn't like- The a, world in your own home even. In my, yeah, in my home too, like just, like what's out there? I think that's when I really became a reader as well too. I have a reader. You start reading stories and seeing that oh, there's all these worlds. Yeah, I mean, so the live like the libraries are always great for getting away. You know, it's free fun. But then also too, like my family I come from a family of a lot of storytellers as well, mm. and so like that was always just a source of comfort. But I think in terms of like being more independent, well, I always read a little bit, but more independent reader and just. I don't know, daydreaming even about stuff. Like that's what I, that's the age I think of the most just because I had a lot of free time. I was homeschooled. <laughs> and viewing consciousness, I mean, well, becoming conscious while viewing poverty in a different light was a more like as a child, like a child's reflection on your state as an eight, nine-year-old or was it a lot of like witnessing and observing and absorbing what your parents were having to go through? Both. Yeah, yeah. It was... Um, I don't want to say a rude way. It was just um, an awakening, I would say, because I, I got a taste of it a little bit. I didn't know that we were on food stamps and welfare until right before we moved to Michigan, because uh, uh, I grew up in the '90s, and so I think they made the transition already to the cards. So I just thought she, my mom had like a credit card, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I 
because of we didn't have it when we went to Michigan right away, that's when I was like, okay, what's going on? We don't have a place and all this stuff. And so then we really, I mean, when I say struggle, like it wasn't, it wasn't we weren't the, the poorest, but sometimes we didn't have electricity. Sometimes we had to wash our laundry by hand. Sometimes we couldn't afford meals. Um, sometimes we couldn't. We were better off than some of our neighbors when we'd end up getting housing. So like that was the contrast. And a lot of times we would invite people to live with us when we did get housing. So not just people that we knew, but just like people who my mom felt some empathy for and some um, um, wanted to help, uh, especially folks in our community. Like we're, you know, black Muslim people, African-American. And so like if she saw another like, you know, black young black mother like struggling, she would invite them in. People would stay with us, like we would meet. Um, and so it was interesting for me just meeting all these different people in the house and not really understanding all of it. And then also too like childish stuff. It's weird because I grew up with so many children that weren't siblings, but were kind of like, we had that relationship for very brief and intense times, like the children of these women and folks who stayed with us. And sometimes um, I think, I can't even remember some of their names, but I just have these moments, these memories with all these different kids and all of the stuff that comes with it and trying to navigate like the world. And so some families, um, were really poor in the sense where they were like starving. Like I remember one young lady, um, she had like four kids. And I think she was a uh, maybe a heroin addict or something. She was addicted to something very thin and they were on the street and her children were very thin as well. Um, they stayed with us for about a month. I remember um, the first night they moved in with us, the youngest girl, she was so skinny you could see like the bones like protruding out of her body a little bit. But I remember we didn't have a lot. So in this particular home we um, we had um, we had a lot of rice. <laughs> we also had because um, my stepfather. So he was working at a bakery. He wasn't making a lot, um, but like we, whatever was left over, the ba- the bakery there, um, which was actually I think I looked up the bakery recently, and it's kind of like a a big deal now. But they were just starting then. It was called Avalon Bakery, and they had given him a job even though he was struggling. I think at the time to find employment, and they were very intentional. These uh, women um, who owned the bakery of employing folks from uh, the community regardless of experience with him. So I don't think he was a baker before. Mm-hmm. And so we would eat a lot of the leftover bread. And so a lot of times it was a lot of bread, a lot of rice, but I digress. Anyway, so the story with the, the young family, um, the woman um, with her children, I remember the first day that they came over to eat because we didn't have anything, we just had rice. My mom made a big pot of rice and then the, the kids were like so happy to get that rice. I remember the little girl, she was had to be like four years old, just like scraping, like, to get like the bottom just because she was really hungry and I was like wow I thought we were like in a position but it was interesting too because their mom would leave for a period of time and they would stay with us and um and we would play and then you kind of get like this sibling like rivalry relationship with the kids too so we're like competing a little bit and all this stuff and then they were gone and it's just like I don't know I've never seen them since I was like nine but um yeah but it's like you have these very intense relationships with so many different people. My mom also did foster care when she was in Minnesota for a little bit too. And so all these folks. And so I think like that awareness kind of started around eight and then I just, I don't know, it's just like, not just um, fan, like fantasizing about the world, but also just um, not revelry, but just like this, I don't even know how to describe it. It's ironic because I'm a writer, right? But uh, just uh, fascination with the world and people and uh, the humanness of folks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just to probably only because I think it's hard to appreciate the full experience of what that means for people and communities. Um, did your yeah, just the one brother, the one blood brother. How many siblings? I'm one of nine. Okay. <laughs> but my um 
my mother and father, they were high school sweethearts out of Chicago. Uh-huh. My mom's family moved to Minnesota when she was, my mom, my, my grandma, my mom's the youngest of her siblings. They moved to Minnesota when I was like 14. My mom cried, they took the Greyhound to Minnesota. My grandma came here for work. She cried the whole time. My dad wrote her letters every day because they went to the high school together. Or not every day, but like often enough. And then eventually he moved over here. You know, she's like, what, you know, teenager. He's, you know, also a teenager. And my family, because we're Muslim, like there's like no, my grandma's like, there's no dating. And his family is Muslim too, my father's family. So like, but he wasn't, he was already out the home, it's a whole other thing. But he ended up asking my grandma, he moved here like a year later, asked for her hand in marriage essentially. Um, and then they got married really young. She was 17 at the time they ended up finally getting married. Um, yeah, about 17 and they got married. They had me and my brother. And then after that, my dad started wilding. <laughs> so I have a lot of- <laughs> You got some, you got some, fam- you got some family. Of, <laughs> I have a lot of siblings. Yeah. Um, they ended family. up getting divorced, but uh, yeah, they had a really sweet time initially. So and- how, how did they talk to y'all about, or maybe even especially in Michigan, like how did they talk to y'all about like the current state of affairs in terms of uh, the life changes and the, you know, finance, the income, the poverty. If I don't know if they explicitly talked about poverty, but if they did, what were those conversations like? With my mom, she was the primary person who raised me. Mm-hmm. She didn't really have, yeah, my mother has a very sweet, uh, youthful spirit. She brings joy everywhere she goes. So that's why it was hard, I think, initially to even pay attention because we would be so broke, we weren't paying attention because she was singing songs and telling us stories and everything was a, it was a time. Like even if we, um, just had like just like the bread like there were times because we did go to school for a little bit too when we'd have like chocolate sandwiches because that it was like oh it's fun but also there was like all we had we had like leftover chocolate from the bakery and the bread the artisan bread um but uh she like make a song too she just make up a song on the spot and then we we're all singing all the kids in the neighborhood are singing and she'll go outside and play with all the kids in there and everybody just feels the love so she is a very mm-hmm. youthful and loving spirit she brings so much joy but um so she, she she wasn't the type of person to have like very hard or difficult conversations about that sort of thing. I think that is part of the reason why I just end up coming out a little bit more cynical than my mother is, and a little bit more um, like the opposite of that. Like I'm not as open as she's she's an open book, and she's always happy and always joyful, and she brings that with her. She goes into a space and people are smiling. She wants she's art and she's naturally charismatic as well, and so. Yeah, there's a lot of love and warmth and everybody just, she's a magnet. And so we didn't have those difficult conversations unless, um, let's see, unless something difficult, you know, came up, then, I mean, she didn't lie about anything. She was pretty open and honest, but she always brought the joy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, one of my stepfathers, he would, he would bring some of that, like, serious, like, you know what, we ain't got to get it. So he was actually the one, I think, that's how I found out it was in the cart. No, food stamps like what? (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned you come from a family of storytellers. Mm -hmm. When were you first getting a sense of that? Oh, out of the womb. My mother was reading all the time, uh, or while in the womb as well. She was a big reader and a storyteller, um, and stories that like again from the library things that she would get but also she would just make up stuff and mm-hmm. so and then also we're religious or we grew up religious uh, in a muslim family and um there's a lot of uh 
a Muslim, like historic, Islamic historic stories of like uh, iconic historical figures in Islam and also like folks that show up in the Quran and also in the Bible, like those kind of stories as well. And then I grew up in a Sufi family. It's like a mystical side of uh, Islam. Mm. And so there's a lot of storytelling and song and music and, and Sufism as well. And so there are some of those stories too. Uh, for me, one of my favorite uh, growing up and also to this day is the story of Rabia Adawiya. She was this Iranian um, woman like hundreds of years ago, a Sufi woman, but she also had a life of struggle early on. Um, I think she was a slave for a little bit too, um, but she, with Sufism, the idea is all of this kind of worldly stuff, like this is a thing, but really it's like your intimate, your personal relationship with the divine. How do you cultivate that? And I actually, a lot of the historic uh, poetry that comes out of the East, so like people think of Rumi and Hafiz, a lot of that sentiment that comes out of the uh, ecstatic tradition, it comes out of that Sufi ideology, that Sufi mindset. And so a lot of that is informed and shaped by that. So a lot of those iconic poems that folks gravitate towards is because there, a lot of it has to be, a lot of it is influenced by Sufism. This idea of like, I just want to have an intimate relationship with the divine and also the metaphor of the divine is the beloved. And so how do you cultivate that relationship, right? And so everything else is just like some mess. And so a lot of the poems, uh, because of that relationship, uh, they just uh, have a different kind of, I know there's just a different kind of sweetness and so I grew up with a lot of those poem songs and stuff like that. Um, and that's the kind of household that I grew up into. So You mentioned your, I just love it. Like you said, your mom would just make stories up. Do you remember any or like what what did that look like? What were those? If you can't remember a specific one, what they're, were some moments of like? so goofy though. Like, um, <laughs> well, and I think that was getting to your original question about how she dealt with difficult stuff. Like she would make a joke out of it. Mm. So like one time they were shooting outside of our house. Or they were shooting a lot outside of our house in Michigan. <laughs> and so, like, we would always do these drills, like, get on the floor, get on the floor, put your, you know, turn off the lights, get on the floor whenever it was, like, danger, right? Yeah. But one time she messed with us, and so, like, because um, I guess she had got some money or something like that, she wanted to treat us, she didn't tell us. So, and this is, like, in the house we lived in, we got really fortunate, too, because we were renting out houses that were even though they were not in the best condition, they were huge. Um, mm. And so like, we actually, that's why we had so many people staying with us. And I, I guess apparently we were on Section 8 too. I don't know how that works out. Anyways, um, I remember one time, I guess she ran upstairs and she was like, I don't know what's going on with this guy in the car and whatever like that. And she was telling up with some, I can't remember the details, but she was telling up some elaborate story about something happening in our neighborhood. And then, um, and then we were like all in like panic mode and, and she was like, I'm gonna go get your brother, we're gonna go downstairs. And then we we're like, okay, me, me and my cousins, my cousins stayed with us for a little bit too. We were like all hype, cause she had done this story. I can't remember the details. But then she came up and we almost, like one of my cousins jumped over the counter, was almost gonna stab my brother. Didn't realize it was him, thought it was someone breaking in. And it turned out like she had bought a pizza, but I don't know, it was just the way that she wove that story. Like she, and the pizza was like, it was like she was pranking us. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, they're just like, I don't even know all the details, but I guess she, that she was that kind of person. And then she was like, whoa, you guys took it to heart. And I was like, well, <laughs> we're scared. <laughs> but yeah, she would also like tell stories about like, I don't know, like she would go on a tangent about um, this little lady who lived in a little house in her in our uh, in the backyard and she had little bitty hills and she would make little bitty pies and, and I don't know, something like kooky, but they were so mm. goofy. I can't even 
I can't even relay them and like actually give them justice because it's also her delivery as well. Mm. Um, but the singing too, she would just make up songs all the time. Like uh, my mom used to sing in um, a choir when she was in high school and she gave it up because she, in terms of her religious ideology, she became a little bit more strict later on. And so she kind of had this love-hate relationship with music. Uh, we're like repressing it a little bit, mm-hmm. even though it was weird because of this, if it wasn't religious music, but she would always sing like songs and she, so she had a, a pretty decent voice. That's why I mentioned the, the choir. She, she kind of had that background. She was always making up songs, mm. always singing. Great singer. She's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe another lifetime she might've been a singer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the house was always filled with like song and stories and stuff. Uh, yeah, and people, just and <laughs> just just all kinds of like, oh man, I don't even know how to describe some of the folks that stayed with us. Were you ever, ever were you ever able to you know, quote unquote, escape or be alone for long periods of times? Did you ever desire Growing to be up? alone? Oh, all the time. I was the only introvert I think in my family. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So I was miserable <laughs> in terms of just the lack of privacy. But I met, I grew to miss it when it stopped. Oh. Um, but yeah, I used to lock myself in the bathroom sometimes. And of course, you can't be in the bathroom for longer than five seconds without like a million people knocking on the door. But that was like, wow, because uh, you share everything. But um, I, I loved it and, and I missed it. I didn't realize it until after we moved back. Uh, well, we moved back to Minnesota. It was still a lot of folks, but we ended up moving into a very nice townhouse, um, still subsidized housing in, in Columbia Heights, like on the border of Columbia Heights and in Northeast Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And it was the well, even then we had a lot of folks there, but there was a period of time right before college and then after college when it was so quiet. And part of it too was um, my mom ended up, she fell in love, she found a guy on the internet and they got married and she moved to New York when I was 18 or 19. And so, that's when I recognized the science. It's like, oh wow, she just she brought so many people in, mm. and it was like all of this. Like it was always exciting. It was not, it was always something going on, mm. and then I was like, oh, this is quiet. Mm. <laughs> mm. And as you became an adult, yeah, at the same too. time, right? although I still love it, I still very much. Uh, I love my personal space, and mm. I love being quiet and reading and that privacy. But there's something we said about growing up that way, and also just. Um, the balance that it provides, because she forced me to get out of my shell in more ways than I probably naturally would have. Uh, but yeah, I always appreciate my mom, and uh, and I credit her for my any kind of writing and storytelling I do. Mm-hmm. And she's my first teacher. So, what is your weapon of choice, and what battles are you fighting? Uh, creatively, or like literally, like uh, uh, I think words are my weapon of choice in general, but also. So I work for an after-school program. I mentioned this to you guys a little bit, um, but I do a lot of work with youth. Mm. I think my mom was a good motivator, and I see like how she recognized potential in other folks all the time, and what that did for a person. And so for me, I really do appreciate the investment in seeing the potential in someone who's someone like who maybe is not. I don't know. There's this whole dynamic when you're working with youth too, like some kids who people. You can see like some certain folks in um, whatever institution might give up on, and not to say like, but I just I like I like recognizing um, the potential in someone who maybe hasn't realized that yet, and so I think I keep going back to work with youth in general because of that. I like to um, support, uh, especially the youth, and kind of. Uh, create conditions to just let them do whatever they do naturally because they're very a lot of youth they already got um 
that wisdom and they're very Gifts. creative. And yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. naturally. Yeah. And the struggle is when they go through the K-12 system, a lot of times, it's there's a point, because I work with such a range of kids from like, I've worked with babies to like high schoolers and right before. So it's like, there's a point like around when they're like seven, eight, nine, where mm-hmm. it slowly gets like squashed. And then by the time they get to high school, because it's weird because um, this summer in particular, I work with, um, I teach a writing class every year with Upper Bound Vision Quest and they're ninth graders. And I also taught a writing class this summer with like second to fifth graders with the summer program. And it's interesting, around the same time they're overlapping the writing classes, but two separate programs. The kids who were younger had more permission to just be wild and just, they didn't feel like, oh, I'm gonna be judging themselves. They took more risk with their writing and their poetry. The older kids, it took a little bit more nudging because they were already used to, not only am I not valuable, but my work is my work's trash. I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to write about. And also poems are whack because, <laughs> because this is the way that I was presented a poem. Mm-hmm. And so like I'm trying to like shatter that a little bit. And I think a lot of folks too, like we're in a very interesting age of the poetry world because of the internet too. Mm-hmm. And um, and like just performance as well where there's a lot of opportunity for youth to find an entry point into poetry that is alive and that it resonates and relates to them in a way that I feel like we need more of in schools. A lot of schools I think are changing a little bit too and showing kids a variety of work. Um, Not to diss like, uh, not to say uh, terrible stuff about whatever tradition you're coming out of, even though um, for me with canons, I don't like to, a lot of times, Folks like to begin with the only English, like European canon, and I like to acknowledge the fact that poetry existed way before a lot of this stuff <laughs> is an oral thing. And so, like uh, when I think of canon, I'm thinking about that longevity as well, like that whole expanse of canon of like opportunity. And you look at the history of poetry, you see that the humor, the the like the 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 uh, the love, the rhythm, all of those things are already there uh, from the beginning. It's like we and there was a and then like it, it it's so diverse that you gotta there's a lot of in, opportunities for entry points and so for me i like to i like to uh, i like to motivate the youth i like to uh, see recognize their potential and let them know that they're loved and then just support them in any way that i can and whatever it is they're doing if they're going to be an artist if they're going to be an engineer whatever it is i just want them to feel that love and that support in a small way for me that's i feel like that's the strongest way that i show up um and then uh, other ways and that's my weapon of choice is just like investing in the youth in some way even like youth in my family as well like seeing like if i can it could be a small thing like if someone is feeling insecure a little girl is feeling insecure just showing her love affirming her you know just uh, recognizing that child um whatever it is i think we underestimate just the impacts that we have on kids and then also um just this world is it's very chaotic and so any kind of love that they can get and support from anyone i think it's very valuable for me i'm thinking about the future and they are the future so i want to support them do a lot of do you notice like some educators that the ones that do give up on these formidable um youth at a certain age is it, do you see like some of these educators like i i know you know this is the way i teach and I hit home runs and this kid didn't like adapt to the way I teach so their gift must not be there and then they give up. You see a lot of just too much stringent nature from educators. I think it's a combination of things because not to rag on educators as well because they're in a possible situation. Like folks aren't getting 
the resources that they need. Um, a lot of the classrooms, depending on the school, they're, you know, it's overwhelming for them. A lot of times you get super talented folks who aren't, in terms of the way the institution is structured, getting the support they need to sustain mm. the valuable work that they're doing. Mm. And so it's tough. And then also too, um, there are educators who maybe are not aware of the dynamics of a certain community and have to do a lot of additional work to build that kind of understanding. And some folks are open to that, some folks aren't. Some folks and, actively choose not to well, do Well, I just like, yeah. it's you, not actively, I don't know, I hope not. There might be, I don't know, there, there are probably those, but hopefully not. <laughs> ah, but just, you know, it's, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of extra. And um, I think it's important, but it's also, sometimes some folks don't even know. Like, there's something to be said about folks just having a certain bubble in their life and then being, a lot of times they put, at least in Minneapolis, I know this is true. They put the newer teachers in schools, I think, that have a higher need or something like that. I forget the way they do it, but something like that. And so you might have an inexperienced teacher or maybe with the lower test scores. I can't remember. I don't want to say anything on the record that's off, <laughs> that's not factual. But I know that there's a whole dynamic where newer teachers get put in, in certain schools that um, maybe have a higher need for new teachers, but then they get burned out. There's like a whole thing in Minnesota in particular where um, the retention rate for teachers, is, it's terrible. Like uh, after like the first five years or something like that, most of them end up, like a third of them end up coding or something like that. There was like an article. And I think a lot of it has to do with that initial support. Also it's expensive. Like they don't typically, there's some programs in Minnesota that I think are intentionally trying to support uh, brand new teachers, but for their last, they have to do like a year, I think, of student teaching, but I don't think they get paid for that. I think that's considered um, mm -hmm. tuition or something like that, but they should get paid for it. It's exhausting, it's it's difficult, and some of that stuff you gotta learn just by um, being in it and also get the support in terms of always that pursuing that profession or having the space for that professional development that is also being cognizant of whatever social changes are happening, cultural changes, emotional things that are going on. Mm -hmm. And they do have um, professional development days for public school teachers, certain days, and I'm pretty sure a lot of private and other mm -hmm. schools do certain things. But in general, I think. So how do you navigate all that? Me? Yeah. Um, by being an artist, I guess. I mean, I don't, <laughs> it's a pop out because um, I'm not, a, I'm not a teacher, I'm an arts educator, right? And with an after school program. And uh, also, so I get to teach the thing that I love. Like I teach poetry to kids, like how awesome is that? And mm -hmm. I dabble in other stuff too with the programs that I end up working with. But uh, for me, I'm always uh, being a student myself. And so I don't presume that I know anything with the youth. I'm always trying to find active ways to learn, regardless of the environment. And I'm open. I think I'm very open in general to learning and adjusting. So I'm always learning new stuff. I'm always trying to hear the youth, like the things that they're telling me, or the things they're not saying, but they're like showing, like with their behavior and stuff like that. And always trying to communicate with folks about just, with especially the parents, like what are the strategies? What can we do to make sure that this kid is getting what they need out of this space, you know? It should be loved, it should be challenging. There should be, a lot of times people lower expectations sometimes for kids. They should have high expectations yeah. for excellence and thrive, <clears throat> but also have that love. Yeah. Seems right. like educating takes a lot of patience. So how do you, oh, yeah. how do you have to be, how do you creatively be patient? Ah, I think that's just practice. 
you got to practice patience like you practice anything else. I got a lot of practice when I was little because of all the folks coming in and out. Uh, but you got to practice. And it's not perfect. Like, I think all of us, you know, we have our moments. But it's a skill like anything else. You work you, on patience. Do you try to find some peace in patience? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is like, I feel like I'm referencing the Sufi in me a little bit, too. Mm. But, like, um, I think... If I ever feel overwhelmed, I just like take a pause and read out. Like I always remember like the context and that for me is enough to get to patience. It's like, this is a child and I don't know all the circumstances in their life and they might be having a moment and I have to respect that this is the moment, but I'm still going to have, um, I want them to be able to grow and learn. But, but yeah, patience, I forget what your original question was, but I think it's a practice. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, for talking about working with youth and kind of like fostering that loving space that can that can uh, recognize their gifts mm -hmm. in the arts what was what was your experience with that growing up you know was was po was it sort of like this clear line to poetry or how did how did your art blossom as you moved through um you know this is going to be sound really weird because <laughs> <laughs> all this though I didn't realize I was creative until even though I all the stuff that I used to fantasize I used to yeah. draw a lot I used to write a lot I used to read a lot but I didn't realize I was creative until basically college <laughs> like the end of high school really um even I used to like design my own like alter my own clothes I was doing all these creative things I never paid attention to it at all <laughs> until way late um yeah. But I was always looking for creative outlets, and then I was surrounded by music and all this stuff too, and um, and I think part of it was just like this anxiety about poverty. I was like, I got it. Like I don't have space to. I didn't think initially, or maybe I didn't. I didn't even make the awareness about creativity actually in high school. I was just like, I need. I just was thinking like, I need to make money. Like, yeah. go to college yeah. get money and I think when I got to college I was oh you can still make money but also um, there's this other thing that you love you gotta you gotta honor that um, and like really learn your craft and so that's what I did but growing up I used to write little poems like my mom has this she took a picture of this poem I wrote and like when I was nine years old that's like really corny and but like really weird for a nine-year-old to, to write but I was always writing stuff and having journals and but I was super introverted mm. kind of shy a little bit too even though I did a lot of extroverted things in high school and stuff too but I never shared any of it until college but basically um, but I had a, an affinity for words, an affinity for stories, an affinity for performance even and I wasn't really paying attention to it until way late <laughs> So in college, you began to privately, at least privately, pat yourself on the back for being, for having all these creative it's outlets. Like, uh, it was kind of an accident. I was a little, like, like senior year of high school and, and college a little bit because I was uh, involved with the community when I was in high school a lot. So I was a part of this program called Muslim Youth in Minnesota. We kind of basically were, it's a youth-led uh, nonprofit. I think they changed our name recent or in recent years, but youth-led non, uh, nonprofit. And what we did was we created community events and like fun things for Muslim youth, but also thinking about interfaith opportunities and whatever, mm. like we decided, uh, decided our own agenda um, mm. every year at different boards. So I was co-president for that for a little bit too in high school. And so we organized um, a number of things. One thing in particular was we did, <laughs> 
this, I don't want to say like anti-prom, but it was like, uh, it was, we had a flag for it though. This is my first time with like, my first experience with trolls. So <laughs> when I was like 17, almost 18, uh, we organized this party. It was like a, a almost like a, a prom-ish party. Um, it's called Party for Only Muslim Muslims. It was for women only. It was at the University of Minnesota. We rented it out. We had a theme. We had all this stuff. And we had like a pretty sizable group of people, I would say. Like almost 200 people came, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we got flack because they were like, oh, this is a religious thing on campus. And like all these random bloggers from like Texas or whatever, like these Muslims are trying mm-hmm. to like ruin the world. <laughs> and, um, but... Yeah, so I remember that when we did the agenda for that. I remember we I wanted to have a we wanted to have a fashion show and like performance and stuff like that. And so I ended up curating some of the performers and we had like this whole thing and, and all that stuff. But I ended up reading a poem at that too. So that was weird. It was like the first time I read something, but it was just a weird poem. And but I was really scared. But it wasn't until college really when um at this other program that I was a part of, a trio program called Students center at St. Olaf College, SSS. Uh, and like at the end of their summer program, they, when you're part of SSS, um, because you're, it's for first generation or low income students, like first generation college students to support them throughout their college experience and you get some funding. And so at the end of their summer program, they do right before you start the first semester, they have like a talent show thing. So I performed at that. But I think that was when I was like, oh, like people, this is like not a fluke, like people responded to it, the poem I read. And then uh, I just, I guess maybe I made a connection with the writing teacher too, and so I just started, I don't know, catching a poetry book. I started going to open mics very regularly, not only at St. Olaf, but also the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. I remember the University of Minnesota had a really good open mic around that time called Voices Emerging, and Tish Jones was one of the curators, I think, sometime, or maybe she was a performer at the time. I remember that. She probably doesn't know that I, yeah, but... Uh, but yeah, I remember going to that and thinking, this is great. And then also yeah. watching like Def Jam poetry and mm. videos and stuff like that. I was like, I want to do that. And so I was just like in love with it. And then performance as well. And then I was like, I was hooked my freshman year. I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna try to perform and also learn this craft. Because I had no idea. Like I really wrote super corny. I mean, my poems are still kind of corny, but they were really corny and kind of basic. But I was like excited. So that's what's important, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of remember these things that you were doing but you never really considered yourself like a performer like sort of when you started take like that hook happened Mm -hmm. what are the things that like uh reflecting back you're like oh my gosh like i have been doing this absolutely first and foremost my religion like Mm. uh learning so i don't I don't understand Arabic, but as a child, we learned how to memorize Quran. We learned how to read Arabic and recite it, right? Uh, the Quran in, in Arabic. That experience, and then also the Sufism, because we do it, what's called uh, dhikr, which is like remembrance of God, where you kind of, it's not like chanting, but it kind of is, where you, uh, there are 99 attributes of, known attributes of God or names of God in Islam. And so sometimes for dhikr, you're uh, recite or chant or repeat like a, a name of God or attribute of God, for example, like tranquility, uh, Latif, you would say that like a thousand times or a hundred times in a group, in community, mm. in a circle, and it becomes like therapeutic. And so like yeah. even that, and then also the songs as well, like the Sufi songs, but um, the those things, because there's a disconnect between, un, like, although some of the words I understand, like snippets but for the most part i don't understand what it is i'm reciting like we read the english translation translation 
Um, and then we memorize certain surahs or like chunks or like not chapters, but like smaller sections of the Quran and their entirety. And even though I will read the English separately, there is still this disconnect when you're reciting because we need to, when we pray, we recite the Quran in the Arabic. Um, so paying attention to the beauty of it, I don't know if you've ever heard the Quran recited by a really good reciter of Quran Hafiz. It is gorgeous. Um, and they take such care to preserve the language and to preserve, because it's a holy text. Uh, a lot of folks may not know this if you're not Muslim, but um, the Quran in its entirety was not a physical book. I mean, there were versions of it, like parts of it, but in terms of like an agreed upon book, it was after the fact. People contain the Quran in, its, in their bodies. Mm. It, contained, it is a contained holy book. And so like the person who contains is Hafiz. And there was a particular event that happened where a lot of Hafiz of Quran, people who have memorized the entire book, they're considered like a, a holder of the Quran. Mm. A lot of them died in a particular war. And so people became nervous, like we need to like standardize this so that we, if something happens, this is like oh. early Islamic history. And so that's when it really became like, now there's like a, a, a agreed upon like book. This is maybe 30 years after, or maybe between like the 50 year window of like the prophet stuff basically. Mm. Um, but Hafiz still exists today, and like they have like Quran reciting traditions, and everybody wants their kid to be Hafiz because there's like all this like lessons associated with it. And so, um, but yeah, it's hard to do because they memorize. When I say they memorize the whole book, like when these competitions happen, like someone will say, okay, this verse, this chapter. Competitions. Here. Yes, uh, internationally. One actually, a kid from Minneapolis recently won an international Hafiz comp uh, reciting uh, Quran reciting. Competition. And most of them are young. Oh, yeah. like, like, a, was, this is like was, a thing thing. Oh, yeah. He was like 15 years old. I competed in one. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, That's another world. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, kid, uh, this, I think he's Somali, but like a 15-year-old kid or something like that recently won. He was like all in like local Muslim news because they're like, oh, he won. <laughs> and uh, international competition. And, uh, but yeah, like they'll say a verse, a uh, chat. And you can, if you can imagine like doing that in any book, just chapter five, verse 10, yeah. recite. Yeah. Like Fahrenheit. They're like, they <laughs> recite it and they yeah. do it with such, you, you develop a relationship to the language because you, again, it's a spiritual thing. You're, this is the word of God. And so you have right. a certain relationship to it with the divine. And so for me growing up, because of the beauty of just the way it sounds, that made me pay attention to sound in a way I think that definitely mm. shapes my poetry it definitely mm. informs my poetry and even my approach to language like for me this is why I wrestle with poetry a lot too because I want you to have like relationship to story or relationship to whatever um, relationship to the meaning but even before that how can I uh, develop a, a form of intimacy with you just with, based on the, the sound so. of the language itself mm. before you get some meaning i haven't mastered that but that's my goal always with the poem i'm like and my favorite poems are folks who really um understand how to cultivate like that reverence for sound that reverence for uh meaningful content that really is honest and and speaking to something about the human condition maybe um but people who can straddle those two words worlds for me that's those are some of my favorite uh poems and also for me, that's what I'm always striving for. And so even before I even have like an idea, like it's the sound of a word, just the silkiness of it that mm -hmm. initially draws me in. Yeah. So that enhancement of invitation 
via sound, um, there must be a, like a clear difference or differences at times in reactions you get from an audience who reads your poems versus hearing them live. That's what I struggle with. Yeah, yeah, I wrestle with that. Um, depends on the poem too. There are some poems recently, because I'm trying to do this weird thing. Anyways, right. I'm trying to write a book and um, there's a lot of research I'm trying to do involved with it, but I'm still figuring out how to navigate. Like there's some history that I want to incorporate in here, but then also how do I, how does it live on the page? How does it live out loud? I'm always thinking like the page and the out loud, this um, negotiation, I'm doing a finger thing. You guys can't see it, but this straddling between these two worlds. And uh, yeah, I think some of my poems are definitely better out loud, but even with that, like, I don't want to just like perform something. I want to create a moment for you, which is why I don't like recordings because you can't capture like the energy of a room or like the electricity of a room or that intimacy. Like it's not even like shock value. Yeah. I just want to have like this moment with you as a human being just in a space. And so I don't always do this well, but I try to. And when I, I feel it in the moment when it happens, I think sometimes my approach is a little bit similar to like my reverence for theater where it's like yes you memorize stuff but you can their play can be um performed a million different ways but it's different depending on who the body is who the director is all that stuff and so i try to do that think about those things when i'm um thinking about performance but (laughs) i don't like to call it performance but it is performance i guess um it's like the idea of intimacy but when i really tap into that it's not conscious um I, my mind goes someplace else and it's like having that vulnerability to just trust the work itself to trust my spirit to figure out what that space is going to be and just go and then mm. play like let the audience be a part of that dialogue as well not even an audience but a conversation and so when i'm not aware of that kind of thing in the moment that's my favorite it's hard to do because i am a very i think i'm a neurotic i think i have a, and i think i have a lot of stuff going on in my head all the time where i'm just like like um, silencing myself before I even stop, just like you're just so stupid, like stop. But when I shut off that voice and you love just, it, yeah, I'm just like someplace else. It's like, was there any hesitation to entering, like trying to enter that space, trying to turn that voice off? Absolutely, like, uh, I mean, there's always fear, right? Always mm-hmm. fear, yeah. and again again I, I, I consider myself an introvert so the idea of sharing anything aloud it's it's weird because I actually now have more anxiety sharing things aloud in a smaller like um, like in a write like a part of writing groups mm-hmm. so like reading something on the spot too is like really anxious it gives me anxiety mm-hmm. like anything aloud although I'm getting better I'm almost 30 so I'm like I'm gonna I feel like I'm getting better at stuff maybe but yeah, initially, everything was terrifying. Like I would, <laughs> I would be like sweating and shaking and stuttering and like, I can't sit still. Um, I remember, but again, it was like, I wasn't paying attention, but I was always inclined to the language and always um, drawn to poetry and I just wasn't paying attention. I remember I, I did um, post-second, like PSEO, like post-secondary, whatever, but just like when you take college classes in high school. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, 
always being terrified to, I took English classes at MCTC. I remember terrified to read stuff out loud, but always wanting to. And I remember also at my high school, I went to Roosevelt High School, and shout out to the Teddies. Teddies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they used to always have a really awesome uh, poetry community there, but I was terrified to be a part of it. And I remember they had this awesome uh, performance thing that they did every, every year where folks would uh, perform their work and you had to audition. I remember once trying to hype myself up. I'm like a mask assist. I'm always doing uncomfortable stuff that I don't like to do naturally. Trying to help myself up and I almost went on stage to like do the auditions and not even the performance. But then I looked at the lady who was like staring at me and I looked at the other folks who were there waiting to audition. And I was like, I am either gonna cry or laugh. This is, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so scared. I just like ran off the stage and didn't do anything. I was just like mm. terrified. And, uh, but yeah, it, yeah, I think a part of it is just also conquering some other like demons I had mm. and like figuring out who I was as a human being as an adult when I addressed or started to chip away at some of that stuff. Mm. Then it gave me a little bit of space to just be vulnerable because I was afraid all the mm. time of a lot of different stuff. And when I was open to that vulnerability and like um, also open to just, ex I don't know, it was like, a, I don't want to say it was conscious, but there was a certainly a choice I made when I was about 18, 19, when I was like, I'm just going to, maybe 19, I'm just going to live. I made a choice to live. And when I made that choice to live, because I didn't always want to live, I was very depressed too. This is like subtext, depressed most of my youth. When I made a conscious choice to live, I was like, I'm gonna live in whatever way I want and however hard I want. And I'm gonna live beautifully and I'm gonna live honestly and I might make mistakes, but I have to live. And so when I made that choice, I started doing a lot more riskier stuff in my opinion. And part of that was, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this thing on the stage. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live. So that's kind of part of it. Is there any community or, you know, is there family? Is there, what are you, is there anything that you're reflecting on to help you get into that mode of performance where suddenly you are in it and, you know, that, that fear that we were talking about is gone? When it's an honest performance, yeah. uh, when it's real, when I feel like when I feel tapped in to whatever that is, I'm going to say the divine is the language I have to talk about it, but folks, might call it other things. I've recently heard other folks talk about being in the zone. I used to play sports a little bit. And like when you're in the zone, it's not like you're thinking. It's no. like you've done all the practice and there's muscle memory. There's also something else you can't really describe. And when you're in there to get to that, like I think when you do all the work you need to do to get to that space, you have to just relinquish all control and just let it be. I don't know like if there's anything that I do I mean, there are certain habits that I have before a performance that help me get centered because I get, there's all the voices. So like, I yeah. usually try to find a space, even if it's wild. And people have known this about me, I think. And they're like, what are you doing? I try to find some place where I can just like breathe a little bit. I say a little prayer to myself and I'm just like focused and I don't really say anything. I'm just like kind of mm. almost meditating, I guess. Yeah. But I have to get centered a little bit and like try to just silence my mind. When that happens, then I can just jump in and it's not always perfect. Again, sometimes I have some really fucked up performances. <laughs> it's all bad that people experience because I'm just like, this is whack. This is really terrible. But it's okay. I'm learning. And it's like, yeah. it, that's what it is. It's like, it's not going to be, it's not going to be good all the time. Sometimes it's going to be bad, but you have to be open for failure, open to risk, open to all that stuff. And then sometimes you tap it and it's worth it. And to get there, I think for me, I have to just center myself in a certain way 
But in terms of like community too, um, I think just writing community, my community in general, when you're good in other parts of your life and you have relation, relationships with folks that uh, fulfill you, you don't have like a lot of toxicity in your life and all these things, like all this other noise is distracting you. It's, it provide it, it gives you opportunity to really indulge in that space mm -hmm. in a way that I think other stuff might distract you from. And so it's like you have to do all this other work that might not even be related to poetry or performance or anything just to get to a space of, well, okay, now I can quiet my mind and focus. But it's a lot of extra work. Yeah. And so sometimes for me, I notice too insecurities and when I really fumble at stuff, I'm like, okay, what else is going on? Is it is like, did I have something with my mom? Did I have something with my brother? Did I have, mm. maybe it's some, something at work. Maybe I'm just being dishonest to myself about the way that I'm performing in this area of life or this thing. Like, what else is going on? What's, what's going on with me? Am I depressed? What's going on? You mentioned if it's an honest performance. What's, I'd love to hear you elaborate more on that. It's so weird. Even the word performance, I, I feel hesitant with. Mm. It's so weird to um, <laughs> this whole business side of like being an artist a little bit, I guess is what it's getting at. Yeah. Where you get someone <laughs> sends you an email and says, hey, show up to this thing. Would you like this to do this? And like, okay, cool. Um, and so, I don't know, sometimes there are part, sometimes there are periods of the time of the year where it just so happens that I'm, and I'm grateful for these requests. I don't want them to stop where I get a lot of requests at the same time and it feels exhausting. Yeah. As, as on my body and also some of the, my contents like um, you know I try to write about things in my life um, mm. and in the world and sometimes that's overwhelming and, and sometimes the content is um, even though I try to always write from a place of love ultimately um, you know I don't want to read sometimes I don't want to recite certain things and, some, and I've been better about um, being aware of when I am in that kind of headspace yeah. too I guess when you know I'm, is it almost an, a eulogy or something like that, but um, uh, I'm talking about social commentary too. But I guess when I say dishonest, it's just like sometimes too, like you could have, I don't know, maybe you're feeling really anxious, maybe just the space itself. Like a lot of times these requests come from folks who don't necessarily understand where I'm coming from. Right. And Talk about my, that. And my, yeah. the That's... audience and stuff. And so, <laughs> There is this weird dynamic uh, about feeling like you're not just being tokenized, but also like mm. performing for like mm. whiteness, performing for someone who wants to resolve or absolve the, some sort of guilt or like feeling like you're on display in some way. And also knowing mm. that in terms of um, the history of certain places, I have to give folks credit where credit is due because there are a lot of intentional things happening in at least the poetry community I can think of or folks that are pushing back at a lot of things or people are just building their own stuff and saying this is for us, by us, you know? Um, and yeah, if you wanna come here, okay, whatever, but this is for us and this is how we're gonna do it. So I really appreciate those things. I mean, that, and that's always been the history of uh, our communities, right? But um, there's this thing, especially when you're talking about maybe I need extra, I use a lot of my art money to invest in, in my art and other artists and then like any extras you know so pay my bills with my with my my job my jobs i got two jobs <laughs> um and uh art is like what i use for extras and 
so sometimes I, I'm like, I have a certain goal in mind. I'm like, okay, I need to get some more gigs. And this, I say yes to this thing. I say yes to this thing as a paying gig. But then I look at the audience and I'm like, I don't know about this. And to give folks credit to you, like sometimes I get su pleasantly surprised. Um, and this is always great learning opportunity for me in certain spaces where initially I probably wouldn't have in any other life circumstance been in a place at that particular time in that way. But I went for my art to share something and the response was, was so heartwarming. And other mm. times I'm like, why did I, it's like the opposite, like, why did I do this? Or were on some level, like I, I might've thought, oh, I might be feel comfortable here because of maybe the folks involved with the event itself, but the audience again is just like you, those Q and A's or can be. Um, <laughs> there's always the, the <laughs> like middle aged white dude is like this really self centered or um, inappropriate maybe a question or taking up too much space maybe even and it can get exhausting. And mm -hmm. I'm like um, I consider myself still emerging like a an artist emerging artist. I don't have um, and I'm still I'm always going to be a student of my craft always my whole life and so. Like, if I'm getting this on, like, the baby scale, I can only imagine, like, that on a larger platform, <coughs> a larger scale. And so that terrifies me. And it's mm -hmm. just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the performance itself or other insecurities I might have might not be because of I'm not, again, because I'm the voice is hard for me to get into that space because of all this other stuff going on. Right. It, it gets in the way sometimes. Or I could just be on like, I just didn't do the work I need to. I have to practice a lot before I do any performance. Mm. Ridiculous amount. So sometimes it's just like... Well, you got to have the energy for it, though. Exactly. You got to have the energy for it. Sometimes you got to have the right amount of inspiration. Yeah. And then, you know, in, like you said, community building is as big a pillar or one of your greatest weapons along with the word. Um, so as you're thinking about sharpening that weapon of community building... Since it's such, you know, since it's such a cornerstone for your creativity, how does if you're thinking about the youth or even navigating the art world as a Black Muslim woman, Muslima, am I saying the Muslima? Muslima, am oh, I saying true. right? So if you're navigating <laughs> the world, um, containing those identities and also thinking about what you, uh, how you invest in the youth, how does that affect? How does community affect the way you dip, dive, weave into your poetic thoughts? You know, I think community, like thoughts regarding my community is always like, it's one of the first questions I'm asking myself whenever I approach something. And really, how do I say this? I have so much love and reverence for my community. And because of the way the world is, and because not enough folks who have similar experiences to me from my community have um especially in the i guess the art form that i'm doing there's not we need more folks to share their creativity and to do the work uh, that they mm -hmm. feel passionate about yeah. and so i feel like i'm always conscious of like okay well how am i can like how will my mom feel about this how will my aunties feel about this how will the folks i grew up with feel about this and i think they're always present there even if because it's such, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if I did have like an audience that I was trying to engage and have develop a cultivated relationship with, I'm always striving to be in conversation with them. However, um, I think 
the distraction of and Toni Morrison has a great quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but it's uh, that I'm going to paraphrase it awfully. Like it's not going to be a good paraphrasing, but she talks about just not letting um, the distraction of like racism and whiteness like get in the way of your work or something like that. And so I think sometimes I be, I think sometimes I uh, I'm the subconscious. All, like a lot of my poems are like speaking to the whiteness or speaking to like whatever and that irritates me I want to get to a place where um, in terms of like institutional like things mm-hmm. I want to get to a place where I can have an intimate moment with my community and like have the recognition of our um, complexities I'm talking about when I say our com- my community I'm talking about like the black Muslim experience the black American Muslim experience like mm-hmm. I think most people they know like the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, in the movie that Spike Lee did right and then they have like you know depending on who like some rappers like some depending on like how heavy they like speak of uncertain things but aside from that um, in terms of like the story time and especially thinking about women as well i want to capture just the juiciness and the and all of the complexities of our community uh, i also write fiction this is part of the reason why i write fiction too mm. because i want to tell those stories that i think we have a very unique cultural relationship to this country that is informed by religion that is informed by culture and that um kind of speaks to our unique story and i i want and there's a lot of folks who want this in our community and a lot of great content and art and activism happening to speak to our particular needs and desires. But like, I just want to be like a drop in that bucket of like folks who are really trying to um, speak to that, our our cultural and religious and communal experience. And also, in terms of the storytelling, like I want to be able to write a novel and a, a collection and have a collection of poems that resonates with my childhood self, because you have to re- remember and resonates with my community that we live in the age of internet now, right? So you can find anybody like on Twitter on, 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 on yeah. Facebook now, but it felt so lonely growing up. Even when I lived in Michigan, there's a lot of like black Muslims, like, like the, that's like the foundation, like Michigan, Chicago, all those places, right? Black Muslim experiences. And there's a large black Muslim community here, black American Muslim community here, and then like black diasporic folks as well. But in terms of like, it just, it felt very lonely to me. And also I didn't recognize like certain things were cultural, even like like language things, um, certain practices. Like I didn't even recognize like bean pie was like a particular thing that black American Muslims kind of brought. Like it took me way later because it was just like, we were always like sidebar, I felt like growing up mm. our community, mm. which is ironic considering we were for a long time and I think still are one of the largest uh, Muslim American populations. And we're kind of the folks who really paved the way for like our, uh, in terms of like um, Muslim Americanness uh, uh, initially and then um, activism, all that stuff. And so like, even though I have, like some thoughts about some of the politics of my community, like just telling the love because of all of the stuff that gets focused on and also focusing on the narratives and experiences that would resonate with uh, girls and women and stuff like that and our stories. Mm-hmm. And like that's what I want to do. And so my community is always one of the first things that comes to mind. And when mm-hmm. I say community, I'm thinking like family, like how does this really like how how is my and it's funny because sometimes my my poems are 
they're a little spicy and I'll get negative feedback too and I'm like okay I have to take it into consideration you know so I'm, I'm always open because I'm learning so yeah my community is always the first thing and it's probably be the last thing I'm always trying to work, write stuff that can be in conversation with them primarily. Mm. Everything else is secondary. Dul Hajj Pastoral for Um. I didn't fast the day I was supposed to, or notice the distance between the little mole flung between your eyebrows. When it mattered most, the sky was indigo, and the clouds became a kind of gauze absorbing the blood orange sun. There's a pilgrimage happening just now my mind went back to your hometown in Mississippi. Did it have blue-eyed grass too? What were you dreaming of the night of your departure? Millions of people will dress themselves in white garments and ascend upon a single mountaintop to recite, Here I am, my lord. Here I am. Imagine their voices drifting upward and away from the mountain, like dandelions. Imagine each year whispering on about you. I can't. Unwrap the parts of this that will haunt me forever from the parts of you that are holy. As you uh, approach 30 and you, you know, you're, you're 18 into, from 18 to approaching 30, you know, you've been cutting some of these demons off at the knees and then cutting them down for good. Are there any demons that have followed you for the last decade? Hmm. I mean, there's still that one. Um, so let's see. Well, there's two really. I mean, the one that always follows me is um, I guess that tendency to, for depression and anxiety all the time and being aware of that. Like I've talked to therapists and stuff like that, but really recognizing that there are certain things about myself that I have to be honest about. Um, so that is one I think that I'll always be struggling with. And, and as long as I have the word jihad that gets messed up, uh, that got messed up in the media, but I always like to reclaim it because that's what it is, it's my jihad. Like dealing with my, it means struggle, mm -hmm. when you're struggling mm -hmm. with something. And uh, that's my, my personal jihad is always like dealing with the depression and anxiety and stuff, right? And there's some other stuff too that I don't want to share, but it's super personal, mm -hmm. but um, healing from that stuff. Like, I think when you're healing, it's active. You're always doing the work, you know, a little bit. Um, like the pain is still there, but in terms of um, being able to move on from those things, but you have to, you have to um, give your space to heal, uh, give yourself space to heal, and also be okay with um, who you are. And like, um, I don't know, I don't want to share too much detail, but yes, I feel like for me to move on, I have to let certain things go. 
and forgive certain folks who have hurt me. And even though the pain isn't gone, um, I can figure, I don't know, I think once I let go of that pain, let go of that anger, allow myself some space to experience anger, to like be validated in my anger and all that stuff. But once it was over with and I acknowledged like this is, I can move on, I don't know, there's like a certain level of freedom that comes with that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I think as a, as a almost approaching 30 human being, like that work of healing is always gonna be with me, but I'm open to it. And it doesn't feel like it owns me. I feel like I'm in, not in control, but I'm just, mm. I don't know, in a better space. And um, I'm always comfortable with taking time to prioritize that self-care, if that makes sense, and that, and that healing. Um, and I don't feel guilty about it. Well, I do feel guilty about it sometimes, because there's a whole dynamic, you know, growing up in a in poor family, I think my family is, large chunks of my family are still poor. And I'm not like wealthy, I'm like, I'm like almost a little bit more than paycheck to paycheck, maybe. But like, you know, I live comfortably, but it's just like, um, I don't know, there's just certain guilt when you think about um, taking care of yourself in a way that is important and necessary, but also that makes you feel a little bit guilty too. But I try not to, I try to like sit and I go like, this is okay. Like I, it's, a, it's normal to feel a little guilty, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with saying no to certain things or just knowing your limits. And it's so hard, but it's an important lesson in life to just sustain for this period of time in my life. And so being realistic about what I can and can't do, that's been, um, I think that's been something that I've been struggling with and I probably will all my whole life, but I'm always working towards. So I like have these goals and that's one of those things too. Yeah. Do you have any daily rituals that feed the healing as well as the art? Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound corny, but I'm, like, really into, like, low-budget uh, aromatherapy type stuff. Like, I like to have, <laughs> I like to have um, um, everybody in my family is annoyed with me in lavender because I'm always obsessed with lavender and mint. But I really do like to, like, cleanse the space. Even if I, like, feeling chaotic, I'm like, I need some lavender, I need some mint just to feel... To feel all right in the space and it just soothes me and so i'll take some moments um i wish i prayed more i'm supposed to pray five times a day but i don't always pray five times a day but when i do pray that's always a good thing um but yeah i like to have moments um with my my essential oils and my coffee where it's just like quiet um it's easy and i'm always afraid of like I think I realize now that even though I love and crave silence, like sometimes I intentionally like leave stuff on or like try to like have like a lot of noise around me, but it's really important sometimes to just have quiet and just sit in the silence. And so there are times, especially like on like a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, I'm just like, let me have some moments for myself in this quiet with this lavender and this coffee. And I won't like engage in any kind of media. I'm gonna have to try not to look at my phone because I'm addicted at this point, but like really pause and have that space. It's also very important as a poet to just have some time to reflect too. But mm. yeah, not consuming anything and not being consumed just in the moment. Yeah, like, and, and this is a question for all of us, maybe, and specifically artists. But this, so I'm posing the question to you to hear your thoughts on on it, but it's for all of us. You know, sometimes we we all agree, you know, whatever we're on the left or for woke or for artists or woke artists or woke lefty artists, right? Sometimes we all agree on the notion that we're all these complex beings, right? But are we really delving into the depths of those complexities and sustained conversations? Mm. 
or, or even like sometimes as artists, we're over here creating these things. We hope to be everlasting and maybe even, you know, we're defaulting to pointing out the fact that, hey, I made this, check it out. Or, hey, check this, this art out from this person that made it. Let me know what you think. I think you'll like it. But I know, you know, we all have to pick our battles. Like, so far we're creating our art. Maybe we're not out there on the front lines all the time. Mm -hmm. Are we getting, are we doing enough as artists? I think no. But <laughs> I mean, for myself, I always feel like I can be doing more. I can't speak for other artists. But I think an artist has a very interesting relationship to the culture and the community. On the one hand, we're basically a mirror, right? And we're, depending on, even regardless of your politics, you have a, an opportunity to show the world or whatever your community is in a particular way. And you have that opportunity to even, so we're a mirror and we're also like inventors, right? Essentially, mm. we're either showing them a mirror of the present or the past. And then I guess you could say that invention is also the mirror towards the future. That's so important. I think we have to value that. In terms of the practical work, I think that means has more to do about how you show up as a human being and less to how you show up as an artist and how you sustain that. I don't know, I think it's different for other different folks because not everybody, not everybody physically in terms of what you're able to do can show up at a protest or even not everybody knows how to organize a protest. Not everybody knows how to, uh, how to uh, create a sustained work that changes things for the community directly. Like, I, um, for example, I see your, is that, what did your shirt say, Fight for 15? So, so not everybody knows how to create a movement to change something very tangible, right? But every, but not everybody needs to know how to. There might be something in particular that you can do. And so I think as a human being, you have to identify what your strengths are and also like how can you realistically show up if it's showing up for taking care of an elder in your community, like your family member, maybe that's what you need to do. If it's going to be like maybe motivating someone else, that's what you need to do. If it means showing up with your body or occupying a space, or if you have the money, if you need to feed some folks, if you need to donate some things, like showing up in the way you, you can, but also to sustain that. I think again, it's complicated, it depends on like what where you are as a human being and also like what the goal is. And I don't know, like I don't have any realistic, I think, answers for that, except for how I try to show up. And I feel like it's flawed. Like I try to show up with my body for sure. Like if there is something going on in terms of like on the front lines, like a, in like a protest or something like that, I try to show up that way. If I, I try to build things with my community, like stuff that's already going on. Um, and um, so I was like, I'm always like a habitual volunteer in like um, different ways, like with my masjid or with uh, other like uh, community-based things. Um, I try to show up in that way. I try to show up in my art. So I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes, like judging contests and like grants and things like that. And also trying to help like on the individual basis, like in terms of like helping folks who maybe not know this uh, 
industry that's particularly weird i don't say industry because it's so weird like you can't really make money off of well you can there are folks who do but like yeah but like i'm talking about poetry in particular but yeah you can't make money off of poetry but maybe um some folks who have really important stories and need some funding like how can i help them if they have questions about a grant or they need mm -hmm. help with the grants or something like that or if there are resources that i know so i think for me i'm always I'm not at a point where I know in terms of what what I can do. I can't build anything in terms of like from the ground up, but I can show up at stuff that's very successful in a way that um, doesn't like attack like my mental like stability. So like I can show up, I show up for uh, things. I also try to show up for, so I show up for com larger community stuff, family stuff, and then with uh, my art, I think. Yeah. But. Um, I think it's very important to balance that with like how your own well-being is. I think I show up for my body too. There's a a thing about black women in particular, about our hearts and uh, how much our stress that our bodies contain. This is like my first and foremost thing that irritates me about structural racism. You look at the uh, maternal mortality rates for black women. You look at um, just the amount of stress. Like you think about. Um, uh, Erica Gardner, you think about how a 27 year old can have um, the sort of health issues that she has and die. And you think about how common it is, like every woman in my family has a heart issue. Uh, every woman in my family, like uh, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt has died because of heart issues, because of stress and because of other things and diet. And so I think about the health and wellness as well. And so I don't know, I think it's for me in particular, it's really important to show up for my body and recognize when I'm fatigued, when I'm exhausted when I need rest, when I need to say no. And so showing up that way and try to encourage that with my family as well. Um, but I don't know, activism is a weird word. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think I actively claim that. I try to claim um, uh, just being a community member, I yeah. don't know. Well, I mean, it's, it's like, it's given us a lot to think mm -hmm. about when you're, you know, you're kind of posing two things outside of activism and art, and that is showing up for your body and showing showing up as a human um, wherever we go, doing that reflection. I think maybe that might take the pressure off a lot of us who are thinking about these two styles of activism or perhaps art and just maybe showing up as human beings. I think there's more risk in that, actually, because you know we talk about when we make our films, like we want to work with good people and then we want them to be talented. But we don't know how our film's gonna end up because money, production, time. But you know, it's worked out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's something for all of us to think about. I'm, I'm definitely thinking about it hearing you say that. What is the humanness, the humanness that we, as we enter every space and that can, that can be powerful. Mm -hmm. I, just, I think I wanna also like, not to backpedal, but I also wanna, acknowledge and also just say it is important it's more than important we need folks who are doing the activism in the way i think we most of us think about it we need that mm -hmm. we, it's so important and we also need agitators it's mm -hmm. just, i think it's just recognizing what you can do like there are folks who who either know how to or what are the kind of person person who when they learn those certain skills it's like it makes sense like if you need to like um if you need to do a campaign to uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and um, 
mobilize folks to maybe occupy like whatever senator or whatever if you want to if you want to um shut down some things like there are folks who have this uh, i think it's just recognizing again what your skill set is and what you have potential for doing or having folks around you to nourish whatever it is you're inclined to do but i think we have to be i think we have to be honest about what we can uh do in terms of our spirits and our bodies and then also supporting each other uh, in whichever way that we show up in that. But it's so important because, I mean, we wouldn't be here in this room right now if it wasn't for folks doing that kind of work and um, putting their lives on the line um, and and agitating and also like, and then stuff on behind the scenes too. A lot of times you get the mm-hmm. face because we always need the symbol, mm-hmm. but all the folks behind the symbol doing the work, uh, that's, they're, those folks are they're super important as well. Yeah, hopefully collectively we're at least seeing each other, right? Mm-hmm. Right now you're seeing someone you care and love about as a community member, family member, or otherwise. I can't go out and march with you right now, but you know, are we seeing that person as where they're at mm-hmm. in that moment or in their life? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. there's... Well, you know, obviously social media has put more pressure on people to be like, well, you saw the Facebook invite, you know, whatever. But yeah, yeah, we appreciate that wider range of thought. Um, and given the state of emergency we're in, I mean, we've been in many states of emergency as uh, marginalized. Uh, I don't even know if, I, well, yeah, marginalized. I don't say minority all that often because we're not the minority, but you know, this current state of emergency we're in, were there any shells you wanted to break out of or boxes you wanted to get outside of artistically, given the times we're in? Mm. I don't think I understand the question. Like, has, it, has the time we're in now, has something, like, nudged you from within to say, I need to, like, be bolder with this aspect of my art or I want to, like, actually create that? You're writing a book or <laughs> nonfiction. Was that, you know? I'm writing uh, some short stories that... I also have an intention of one day learning the skills to write a novel. Mm. Um, I have a particular story I want to tell, and I think fiction is the best route to tell those mm-hmm. stories, and, and the one for the novel. And then collections of poems I've been wrestling with for a while, so yes, different mediums. But I think what I'm struggling with is, uh, in terms of the state of emergency, I think the only thing in terms of the relationship to the art is um because i always there's always a state of there's always emergency with i mean this is our this is a racist empire let's be honest and there's always been racist empires or just empires that are corrupt and this is what i believe this country is um is very abusive uh, not only to our communities but communities all over the world um and so that is the reality has been since the beginning they claimed to discover something that uh, was 100% occupied <laughs> the folks uh, so whatever that lie but what I will say is that I think okay not the initial emergencies maybe we're getting that but the response in terms of how to remedy those things have forced me to kind of be more clear and direct about my fine lines in terms of this. I'm not going to give as much energy to this toxic mm. uh, abuse in terms of the, the society. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in focusing on nourishing my community in a very real and tangible way. If it's going to be having a relationship with a young person, if it's going to be writing a poem with like, um, uh, 
you know, about love and as opposed to this. Like, I'm going to focus on this because, you know what? Um, I know there was like this whole thing. I remember I said I wasn't going to talk about our president, but there was this whole thing right afterwards. I've told him this before. There was this whole thing right afterwards where they're like, oh, we need to like publish like marginalizing air quotes folks uh folks and we need to write poems against this horrible person who by the way is like the physical embodiment of what everything's country has been about is just mm-hmm. saying it out loud right and so uh i don't know like I, I just felt like this i don't know it was just this disconnect i was like i don't want to be um no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna write a poem for this in this way. All right. Yeah, I'm going to write like I have been, and try to really get more. I guess, and and, and, and I'm trying to be more intentional with my community. I think that's what it was. It was like, oh, I, it, it has to be protected because mm-hmm. not they they don't care about hiding it anymore. Like they're mm-hmm. not interested in the facade anymore. So what happens when the facade is gone? Okay, well. You know, so I'm just more interested, I guess, in um, being clear about I want to focus on my my particular communities. Um, but I don't know if, and maybe the writing has, maybe that's the change. But really, like, I, I feel like, for example, I'll give you a concrete example. I wrote a poem called Yes um, that was published maybe in 2020. I forget when it was published. But I wrote it in response to... Um, <laughs> to some of the racist practices that our country does to target uh, Muslim youth, particularly in Minnesota, Somali Muslim youth. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it um, about this trial of the, uh, I wrote it not about, but it was a impartially response to this trial, this really popular trial that was happening, a well-publicized trial that was happening where these kids were basically kind of condemned terrorists mm-hmm. off of this, uh, this Entrapped. program. Uh-huh, entrapment, right? <laughs> the, um, the, there's a particular program that gets where they spy on Somali youth and, and young Muslim youth or radicals or whoever, and they make all these accusations. So I went to some of the trials. It was a federal court case uh, with the community, um, the um, anti-war community was showing up for that um, and other folks. And this was during Obama. Obama, um, um, and again, there's like this duality because. You know, imagine growing up never thinking that there would ever be someone who looks like us in a, in a position like that. Mm-hmm. But also some of the policy and direct opposition with, you know, what it means to be human, that right? Mm-hmm. So has uh, increased surveillance, deportations, all this stuff happening with Obama, right? <clears throat> um, um, all this warring, right? And so that was, I wrote a poem, poem during that time period. And it just so happened when it actually got published, it kind of aligned with when our new president kind of was on the scene. And so people really resonated with it in a different way. But I don't think people were paying attention to the fact that this was a poem <laughs> that had nothing to do with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there, there was a response to stuff that he was already going on. So yeah. mm-hmm. I think for me, it's just like, I'm always trying to be honest. Even if I have, I have a lot of learning to do, I'm always learning. <laughs> I say I'm sometimes I'm on some ignorant stuff and so I have to be aware and so I think my favorite would be the second I feel like I know everything or the second I I can't I it's like oh I'm done that's when I would be afraid I'm always trying to learn and grow and so um I don't know what uh but I think yeah in terms of the change I don't know I think I've 
always written a certain kind of way. It's just people are more interested in receiving it now. Folks who weren't always interested mm. in receiving it. Hmm. What's that feel like? Oh, it's weird. I mean, I don't know, it's just very strange and odd. I don't even know how to, I think because it's uh, happening now, I don't know how to process it. I think there is this weird thing. I've been more intentional about paying attention. That's what the one concrete change I did. I started paying attention being active, proactive, and, and looking at the history of uh, particular journals, and like in the written poetry world, mm. looking at their history of who they're publishing, and mm. like what, and who's the, the editors in a way that I think I was just took for granted, because I want to see if people have a track record when they say certain things, especially if you get approached, like, oh, we want to, okay, well, what are you about? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, for real. What were you doing before? <laughs> and so um, it depends on like, um, there's this whole negotiation always, but I'm always interested in that too. Same thing with like accepting certain invitations. Like, what are you doing? Mm. Um, unless it's like, okay, okay, I guess someone is going to vouch for you. But I don't know, it's all, it's all I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, because like, it's trust, like, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, a lot you know, of times, good blind trust. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I'd better. But, um, and I've been caught up to see that I've gotten in trouble. With certain, I'm like, show up in certain spaces, I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, well, this is telling. Someone will uh, curate something and they invite me. And then, then you wonder about their choices when they have certain other folks who are doing work. And you're mm. like, I don't know about this, the tone of this, you know? Mm. And um, so... Yeah, I've learned a lot of stuff the hard way. Mm -hmm. I'm always learning stuff, but I've trial and error. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know. But yeah, there's just all these biases via the media toward, you know, black Muslim men and youth um, in Minneapolis that it's just out. It's outrageous. Yeah, it's scary, too. I think going through that trial was... It broke my heart because the way that they, like the FBI agents who were um, testifying, like the evidence, the evidence in air quotes they had for this, um, these youth, it's like innocent shit. It was just like, oh, they were texting and, um, <laughs> um, and uh, playing paintball guns, you know, paintballing and stuff like that. And mm. like, I remember when I was a teen, like when I was an older teenager, like that was a, such a popular thing for like a lot of kids to do. Just go and paintball. Like, what are you gonna do in the summer? Oh, let's go paintball. That was like criminal, like making it something that it wasn't. And like a lot of innocent stuff that was like twisted. And I didn't even know them, but there was like a degree of separation. Like some of these kids, you know, swung in circles that like my cousins mm. and the folks were in. So it yeah. like, felt very home, close to home. And and then also too, like they do the same thing to you talk about black youth in general, like they um, take away their right to be children. Like I remember recently, like for example, there was a they said black men they're like 14 or 15 years old in my headline, yeah. or like they do the same thing with girls as well and young folks. And so I don't know, it was just like a whole thing, but it, it hurts because. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Ever since, I don't want to. I don't. That's one thing I don't talk about a lot either, um, intentionally. But when the sh focus, because there was always a, there was another focus before that event happened, but 
when the media focus kind of went out for blood for Muslim community in general, like in the vilifying and, and uh, terror, like uh, creation, the creation of the terrorists, essentially, when that became a thing, like for me, I really had to, well, I was blessed because right around when that shift started happening, I was homeschooled for a little bit, so I kind of got a little bit sheltered and I was grateful for it. Couldn't imagine going to school when that shift happened. And I also used to wear like traditional hijab, like I don't, I wrap my hair sometimes, but uh, not all the times. Um, and, but when I was like very visibly Muslim, it was a scary time and to be in uh, America um, and knowing that folks literally hate you. <laughs> and uh, don't understand your humanness. And then also, then within like Muslim communities, uh, being black and then also being black American, it's a very important distinction because we have very respective cultures, beautiful cultures, but experiencing anti-blackness for Muslim communities. So like this being at this kind of, yeah. this is tension sometimes. And so, um, and so for me, like in terms of consuming media, I have to be very, aware again the self-care like i don't want to i don't want to feed my body so much of mm. this notion of that i know it's not true because it's like this is my family right but still but consume this media that's telling me even in the way that it's not telling me even in the positioning of the language and the headline and like the things they choose to omit it's like they try to tell you something about yourself that isn't true in a subconscious level and in a very conscientious way too as well in a very direct way and indirect ways and so if you consume too much of that um it destroys your spirit it destroys your confidence it destroys you it can if you if you're not taking um if you don't have that kind of self-awareness and so it's hard and so for me i try not to um because like it seems like at this point maybe it's just the way that like, whatever platforms curate things or even like a, whenever i look at a, a physical newspaper like in the grocery you look at my, mm -hmm. it's like always a certain kind of headline i'm just like i don't want to hear about this fool anymore mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to see the ways in which you're gonna like take away the humanity of a person by the way the image that you show when they are the, the victim when the when 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 they are the ones who had something wrong happen to them, you know, yeah. when we always have um, uh, again, folks are trying to be a little bit better, but still like jacked up pictures of folks mm -hmm. and the and information they include or don't include. So I'm just I'm over it. I'm tired, yeah. and so I, I try to be aware of what's going on, but also I I stop myself from consuming certain things after a certain point because otherwise it feels uh, overwhelming. Can be so exhausting because now here we are in this mode of resistance we're in trying to fight to get back to a level of general oppression <laughs> you know like we're trying to get back to the status quo oppressions because we're being so <laughs> it's like can you just can you just hide or just just go back to you know this stuff uh, like yeah. 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 it's scary though it's so scary people have no they say well you, you have no shame to do anything but people have no shame about shame about their the not only their racism and their bigotry, but like acting out on it. Yeah. Like there's no shame. Like po folks are honorary about it. They're fucking high-fiving high each other. Yeah, and it's and folks have been depending on like, I guess where you were, but it's just like, you got folks who are no longer interested in having the front. That's, that's very frightening mm -hmm. to me. And also you have the media, this like singular, not all like mainstream media I want to point out, there's like almost a singular voice of like kind of re not reinforcing it but like kind of going along with it until it becomes normal um and the way and like there i mean there's just so many and not to because i appreciate when 
like journalism as as a practice and also and I appreciate folks who um, do that work it's very hard to be involved in any kind of media right um, mm -hmm. it's a lot of work and it's important stuff because how else are we gonna know stuff <laughs> so we need that balance but also it can be especially for larger outlets where it just feel like in terms of the stories they want to focus on the way they focus on it and the images they show and the phrasing it can be that singular toxicity that if you're not careful, you're going to slip up and you're going to also adopt that ideology. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna feel like accidental, but really it's a form of programming because it gets in your subconscious and your psychology, your psyche. And so um, I think it's very important to sometimes unplug and also just read. Like we don't do a lot of like reading. We do like this snippet thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to just revisit because- um, You would think that poetry would take off. <laughs> what do you say to people um, who don't receive poetry or don't think poems or that genre receives them? Hmm. You know, cause, I mean, however people want to articulate it, but there are plenty of people who say, oh, poetry ain't for me, or hmm. I don't get poetry. And it's like, it's all really something deeper there that they're admitting. A couple of things. So one thing I want to, this is a sidebar. We're living in a very fun time of poetry. Like this is a very exciting moment. If you haven't been equated with poetry Twitter, you should be. It's very, like the poets, po, po, the, they're in a lot of the local poets too. Like there's just phenomenal exciting time for poetry in general because you have to remember, um, like the spoken word community in particular is coming off the hills of like that golden age of like hip hop too. Mm -hmm. And like, then you have the media and then you have just so much access and so many different folks and just a spectrum of like ways that people approach it. Um, and, and not all of it has to be good. Not all of it has to be whatever. And so, like, some folks are making a lot of money. Like you have Instagram poets, like people choose to love or hate or whatever, but it's just a very interesting time for poetry. I think right now, I guess everybody says it about their time, but there's something happening in this moment that I think we'll reflect upon later on. Um, anyways, for folks who feel like poetry isn't for them, uh, this is my philosophy on life and poetry in general. Like we're all experiencing poetry. I think mm. the person who identifies themselves as a poet is someone who's made an active choice to um, pull from themselves in the world in a particular way, like to engage with it through that that art form but everyone is a, like this lived moment is a poem and i think when you're an artist i think you see a world in a particular way you see the world in a particular way that makes you want to engage in whatever medium you're inclined to but it's like everyone is engaging in in poetry because for me a poem doesn't have to live on the page doesn't have to live out loud necessarily it is that experience it's a reason why when someone sees something profoundly beautiful they say oh it's poetic it's a live moment, it's a live experience. When someone sees something that's horrendous, right? And they're just like, or even like um, something that should have happened um, or like some kind of justice, they say poetic justice, right? Because there's something like flat and beautiful about the way that that thing mm -hmm. happened, right? And so we recognize these things in, the, in our lives and in nature. Poetry is all around us all the time. How do you choose to immerse yourself in it? I think because of the way that our society works, I think racism is an interesting thing because it works on every level. But I think in the structure of our empire, because of the way our societies have been structured, I think um, 
you know, this like standard, okay, this is like way a poem should exist. It should be like this iambic pentameter. It should be in this particular voice. It should be like this. And you can't do, you can't have this experimentation. Other art forms, music, you can get all kind of experimentation, right? People don't feel, even with film, right? You, there's room for it. And it might not be like, like uh, uh, what do you call it? Pop culture. But like the same thing with music, pop culture is one thing. But like you get all this room for uh, experimentation, for play. I think with poetry, there's still this notion, at least I can only speak for English language in the United States, of like it has to be like this refined thing. And it's not for me. Mm-hmm. But if you dig a little deeper, you see it's for everyone. Yeah. It has always been. It hasn't always existed on the page. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's um it's like it's organic. It's like it's alive. Just like language. Our language has changed. You try to listen to an English speaker three hundred years ago, chances are you have a ch- issues understanding even the way they speak. Yeah. Like because it's alive. It's always growing, it's always changing. Languages are beautiful. So, because language is beautiful, poetry is always going to be alive, always moving and twisting, and we're always going to have our relationship to it. And so I think everyone is a poet. This is my thing. Yeah. Just depending on how you choose to show up for that. You don't have to. Not in this way. Maybe you're going to do it through your, your music. Maybe you're going to do it through your paintings. But that's poetry to me. Everything is poetry. All the time. How does your community nourish you and like how they receive your performance? Mm-hmm. And that, that reception can look very different, right? It doesn't need to be just like physically there. Uh, I want to just make sure I clarify if I, because I probably misspoke. I'm not like helping my community. I'm doing, I'm showing up for my community. Sure. Like that's being in community mm. and probably terrible, like not perfect ways, imperfect ways. I'm not trying to show up because that's what you do when you're a community. Mm. If I wanted to be alone, I'd go on a mountain or something, maybe. Mm. But, um, but also, I think. For the most part, because again, I am still emerging. So my response I've gotten from my direct community, like folks I've grown up with my yeah, whole life yeah. in the masjid, they always are super supportive and excited. And even um, um, it's just excited because you have to imagine if you don't like see yourself in like any media all the time, like the particular of your complexity it's just like wow thank you for like this is it like you know and it's not just me like i feel the same way anytime i experience anything from my community like there's this movie called muslim that this like black muslim kid made a while ago uh based in 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 detroit i like cried like in this film and it's like it's not like the best film in the world but it was like the first time i ever saw anything that Mm. even got like close to like what my childhood experiences were like i was like wow i cried Mm. uh same thing with uh there's another there's a lot of writers local writers and some uh all over the United States, um, uh, not just in poetry, but um, fiction, like um, Maya Beck, she's a poet and a speculative fiction writer. There's Vanessa Taylor, like the folks who are writing stuff that are getting to the particulars mm. of our experience. And I'm just like every, like the first time I met Maya Beck was through a short story she wrote about, um, and she and we were published in the same place, but I had never met her because she's originally from uh, California mm-hmm. and moved here like, three or four years ago, maybe to the Twin Cities, but we had never met in person. We were published in the same place. And so she's grew up black Muslim. And uh, she you said Maya? Maya Beck. Okay. Yeah. She, um, yeah. So she, that's her, her writing name and, uh, or the name she goes back to, uh, that, uh, she wrote the story and, uh, in this little journal, little story talking about like hijab, all this stuff. 
And like the way she wrote it though, it was just like, it resonated to me. I was like, I never read anything like this, I'm crying. I'm like, mm. I called my mom. Like I just never read someone say it that way, in this yeah. way, about this thing. And so I want more of that inside of I experience it. Like even the idea of someone, like SZA, you guys know about SZA? Yeah. Okay. Like she was, she grew up, you know, she's a black Muslim and like she doesn't like talk about Islam explicitly, but the fact that she's doing it, it's mm. like that. Like I just cry thinking about it. Like I'm like, wow, like she's doing something. It's like that's that's us. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're here. And so for my community, for the most part, I haven't heard anything negative and this is probably gonna like jinx me, except for like <laughs> once um I wrote this uh, short story that like had like a hint of like sexual stuff and my mom was like I don't know about this year. Like, <laughs> like, I don't like it. <clears throat> so, um, but it's like fiction. Um, and I mean, it was, but it was published. Um, but, hello, paper darts. I love you. And, uh, but I think for the most part, I usually get positive stuff. Um, and even though I don't, I don't think I overtly talk about Islam a lot in my poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but I, the idea, like the ideas in the foundation of the way that I write about certain things is recognizable from my community mm-hmm. in ways that I think that is specific and that we, like when, if you're part of it, if you, if you need to know, then you know about it. Yeah. And if you don't, you just think it's a beautiful thing. You're like, oh, that's cute. But someone else will recognize, oh, this is, oh, this is a, this is wudu. This is like the same. This is this. Okay, I recognize that. Or like bean pies. Like this conjures a memory, yeah. not just for my particular community, but everybody who's ever had an encounter with bean pies. Like I had folks who weren't even Muslim coming up to me, other black folks, when I did a poem. I have a lot of like a series of bean pie poems. Bean pie is a, <laughs> a pie that is made by, um, that was invented by black American Muslims um, through the, the, the nation uh, originally. Mm. And it's kind of like a, if you've ever had a sweet potato pie. It was kind of like inspired by Sweet Potato, but it has a whole story, a history about it. So I have a lot of like sequence of poems that are in dialogue with Bean Pie, maybe, or some other things. But I don't yeah. know, Bean Pie is a muse, it's an entry point. And so like I have folks who you remember, and like there people sell bean, my brother sells Bean Pies, they sell Bean Pies all over, but they're not as prominent here in Minnesota as they are like other places um, in, the, in the United States. So like if you go to like a Detroit or New York, you're gonna find some Bean Pies all over the place, maybe, or Chicago for sure. But folks who like were from other states or cities, like for, this girl came up to me after a show in Chicago. She was like, you said bean pies. Like I had all these memories about bean pies and like, I'm not even listening, but I remember they used to sell them at the bow ties and all this stuff. And, like it's always like a thing. And so like, I, I appreciate that. I really do. And so I've had a, some, a lot of positive stuff um, from my community, from other folks. Uh, mm. It's like, whatever. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> art of uh, Maya and Vanessa are really recharging you lately? Yeah, I mean, and just, uh, you know who's, um, like, fangirling out, but I, I like, I guess, I don't really even know if we've like, actually met, but we've encountered in, like, similar spaces, but I've always been a fan of, uh, a photographer here. His name is Bobby Rogers, you guys do know him. I, like, I'm such a fan of his <laughs> work, and, uh, yeah. So I don't think we've ever met in person for real. Like I think we've been in like same space at the same time and like had like awkward like I mean yeah. but yeah, I'm a fan. His work has given me a lot of life. Cool. Yeah. So how are you balancing cynicism and hope? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm <laughs> I'm I was supposed to write an essay, I think, kind of answering this. Um but anyways, 
uh, which I haven't. I'm laughing because I haven't started yet. I I don't know. I guess. Yeah. I think. I I'm always. I think they're like the yin and yang. They need a little. You need both. And I don't know how. I think if one feels like over dominant, I don't know how I'm balancing them, but I know that it's important to balance them. Um, you need both. That's in a, like you always have to be, you know, just critical. That's one of the things I always try to teach my students, regardless if you end up writing anything or not. Like, how are you critically thinking? Like, I want to know, like, are you interrogating? Like, how? And then, like, but like, yeah, the cynicism is important, maybe, but also, and like, maybe you're just like, shit, like, yeah, I don't care about any of this, too. But, um, I think hope is necessary and it's important not to be blind by it. Yeah. When I made the mm. choice to be alive, when I talked about that I wanted to live, when I made that choice, I think that's when I really started to value that hopefulness because I had never, I think I was always kind of like faking it before, mm. like hopefulness. I was like, yeah, whatever, but I never genuinely thought I would live beyond like, you know, 21 or whatever. I didn't think I was going to live that long. So even today, I'm like always like, Oh, I'm alive. I'm almost 30. Wow. So, uh, hmm. uh, so that's like always important for me to balance it that way. But yeah, I mean, some, I, and also I like to honor my emotions in real time. So, or just give myself space, like even if it's private, um, to just sit in something. Like if I want to be shady or cynical or whatever, I'm going to sit and I'm not going to like not validate that emotion, but I just don't want to get distracted. Mm-hmm. The Sufis yeah. have a beautiful thing that they say, uh, or there's like a story I'm gonna butcher about this guy who is, uh, we say you're an awliya, like you're like a friend of God, you're close with God when you're like doing the work that you're supposed to do to like the, you know, ritual to get closer to the divine. And so like he was doing this remembrance of, of God and got to a certain, you get like level up, like like Mario where you station up, like you level up and your relationship <laughs> to God. And so he was like, uh, like a saint basically, almost. Yeah. And then when you level up in this, notion that some Sufi, there's a lot of diversity in Sufism, a lot of different traditions. When you level up, then you get like certain weird stuff start happening, like you get a relationship, the, the veils of the world start lifting themselves. So you see certain things, maybe you hear certain things, certain things that are applied to like the rules of physics, maybe may, not, may or may not apply to you anymore. And then um, the spiritual idea, ideal, idea. He was worshiping God. Then he started hearing like the, started hearing the animals and, and, and um, grass talking and that like tripped him out so he started worshiping the grass which is like the ultimate sin in islam when you start worshiping something other than god mm. and so like he got tripped up and so it's like this idea of, like don't get distracted like mm-hmm. beautiful thing powerful things gonna happen but you got to stay focused on like what the goal is like mm-hmm. this relationship to the divine so for me it's like yes sit in that emotion if you have some cynicism or whatever sit in that sit in the hopefulness but also don't let it distract you you gotta sustain that goal. What are you tired of hearing? Our president's name. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Creating, making it art. When is it? When is it most fun? Hmm. When it's a little. Um, <laughs> when there's no like when I because I again I I am like a low key perfectionist and pretty. Um, 
neurotic sometimes and so I'm always like trying to like overthink something when I'm not overthinking like the initial pro it process I think that for me is uh, fun when I'm like relinquishing control and I'm uh, again getting to the space where it's just something happens and I don't even know how to explain it or when it happened or how do you and I don't even care like if I can repeat it or whatever it's just a thing and when people feel that they maybe don't know they don't know that's what it was like it was like this mm -hmm. other thing <laughs> that was happening yeah hmm. I like that it's exciting what do you want to say to all the listeners it's one thing Mm. Ooh. I think take care of yourselves, but also show up for your communities, whatever ways that is for you. Um, and in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming, I think we all have grandiose mm. notions of how we should show up, but something could be something small and consistent. Mm. <laughs> show up for yeah. yourself, show up for your community. True that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sagira. It was an honor. It was an too. It was cool. It was fun. Thank you, Sagira. Thank you so much. As always, Weapon of Choice podcast is brought to you by Special Menu Productions. You can check out all the stuff we're working on at specialmenuproductions.com. We've got all the backlog of Weapon of Choice episodes. We've got show notes. We have film projects we're working on. Uh, check it out. Get in contact us. Get in contact with us if you want to collaborate. Everybody, uh, we'd love to work with you. That's right. And uh, you know, we'd love for you to reach out, um, hit us up online and on social media. But also, if you want to highlight us besides social media, you can hit us up in our email. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail dot com. Weaponofchoicefans at gmail dot com. Well, you can write to us at length, and the reason why is because we always want to hear what art you're taking in to keep you going to inspire you, let us know. Shoot us an answer to that email. What art are you taking in? And also, uh, send us a message if there are any artists that you want us to interview. That's, that's right. Any way we can get your support, we love you for that. And we'd love to show you love. You just stay in contact with us, and uh, we'll give it right back. Um, that is it for us today. And we are going to finish you out with one more Segura poem. And after we do that, you can look forward to uh, some new episodes coming from our Weapon of Choice New York edition. All right. That is it for this episode. We've got one more poem from Sagira for you. Here it is. Bean pie. Soaked in water, dried beans have the potential for holiness. When I was a girl. I watched my mother fall in love with God, as if God were a dying language. Every morning before dawn, she would find transliterations of prayers and wet beans and whisper them into the batter of a devoted pie. The pie only knew how to pronounce the sounds of God as it baked. I knew it was enough for me to purify my nostrils in this fashion, splash the pearly gateway of my minds with the smokiness of a pie's promise. To appreciate a beautiful moment, you have to know its absence, taste the quality of life burning down your throat long after it's gone. 
And this does not mean you get to summon it back. No, beauty doesn't work that way. And like any daughter, I reflect on how I have a hard time recalling the way the bass of my throat is supposed to catch the brimming sounds of this particular Quranic verse. But miraculously, I have managed to memorize the scent of every home I've prayed in. <laughs>